Well, I want to thank everybody for joining us today. I'm Matt Rajansky, Director of the Wilson Center's Cannon Institute. Uh, very happy to be bringing you a timely discussion uh, with my friend and colleague, Jordan Gantz-Morse. Uh, we're going to be talking about corruption uh, in Russia and Ukraine and uh, some of the nuances of that seemingly eternal problem, uh, as well as uh, Western policy responses and many other related topics. Before we get started, uh, I want to remind everybody that you can stay up to date with our upcoming events and publications on our website, uh, where you, of course, can sign up for uh, something as old-fashioned as an email list, uh, as well as keep up with us on social media, uh, including our new podcast, uh, the, uh, the Russia File, as well as our now uh, year-old podcast, Ken and X. Uh, so check both of those out. Uh, we talk about related topics. Uh, oftentimes intersecting with conversations that you will see like this in webinars and Facebook Lives. Um, throughout the program, if you have questions for uh, our guests, you can submit them by email to kennan at wilsoncenter.org or on our Facebook page. And please, uh, when you submit a question, include your name and affiliation. It simply makes it more likely that we will go to your question. Um, so today, as I said, I'm joined by Professor Jordan Gantz-Morse. He's an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at Northwestern. Uh, there, he conducts research on corruption, rule of law, property rights, and uh, political and economic transitions. Uh, though his primary regional expertise, and we're grateful for this, is the former Soviet Union, he researched as well on Central and Eastern Europe and Latin America. Um, he is the author of Property Rights in Post-Soviet Russia, Violence, Corruption, and Demand for Law, 2018. Uh, and in 2016 and 17, he conducted Fulbright-supported research uh, based in Kiev on anti-corruption in Ukraine. So, Jordan, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I look forward to it. Uh, let's start with what we advertised in the blurb and uh, what is certainly current news and I think still ongoing, and that's the protests in Russia's Far East and Khabarovsk over the arrest, uh, uh, removal arrest uh, under suspicion of involvement with murder of the liberal Democrat, though I always hesitate to use that political term, uh, Governor uh, Sergei Fergal uh, and his replacement basically by the Kremlin's man. Um, is this a story about corruption or is this something else? I don't see it to be too much about corruption. Uh, to me, this is pure politics of the type that we regularly see when somebody who's not super, super powerful in Putin's regime, but has managed to win an election against what the Kremlin, you know, against somebody that the Kremlin wanted to support, has overstepped their, uh, overstepped their boundaries a little bit and is now getting punished for this. So this seems just like typical politics, with the exception, of course, that there's some really serious protests going on. And that part is interesting. Um, but I don't think that's about corruption, per se. How about, I, I kind of flip the issue on its head. Um, I ask myself, in a country that, that has relatively complacently, and I say relative, I know there have been big street protests before, um, but, you know, the recent uh, fraudulent constitutional voting is, is a great example of this. The country has basically been complacent about uh, continuity of control of everything from the Kremlin. Uh, in that context, it, I wonder, why would people even be so upset that, you know, sort of one candidate who's accepted by the Kremlin, even if he's not their favorite guy, gets replaced by another one? And there, I wonder if corruption is the issue. If, in a sense, the only kind of internal competition that matters is, is who is less corrupt. It's in the Soviet system, it was the sort of chazyaistinist 
competition, sort of who was a better manager within a system that everybody agreed was morally bankrupt, but you at least wanted the guy who could deliver the goods. Yeah, so I think you, uh, overall I agree with you that there's some truth to that. Um, I don't know if it's happening, if that's what really is happening in this specific case, um, because I, I definitely do think that the Russian people care about corruption. I mean, survey after survey shows that it's one of the more prominent things that they care about. Um, I definitely think that the December 2011 backlash against the fraudulent elections and, and more broadly some sense that there's just corruption in the regime, um, that that was very much motivated by corruption more than just by anything, and that some of Putin's anti-corruption activities after that, um, if not entirely sincere, were definitely done because they were noticing that there was enough Russians who really do care about this. Um, but in, in the specific Harborovsk, uh, Har um, you know, events that are going on right now, to me, they seem more just like about a question of local control and in some sense, especially in the Far East, where there really is a sense that this isn't, you know, that Moscow is another world. Um, and some sense that things get decided as they're supposed to get decided on the local territory here. And we don't really want that type of intervention. This is a pretty extreme level of intervention. I think it's more about that kind of, you know, uh, tension between the local and the national, uh, the center and the regions um, that still is not entirely gone when you go that far east. To me, I think that's probably more the story here. But I do think overall what you're saying about, you know, people in Russia caring about corruption and making decisions and supporting people based on that issue, I think there's some truth to that for sure. Uh, I'm going to ask this question when we change gears in just a moment and talk about Ukraine, but let me ask it for now with respect to Russia. Has the pervasiveness of corruption, and I'll ask this relative, for example, to the 1990s. We know in the 1990s that you had, you know, Pasha Mercedes, the defense minister, corrupt on a very, very high level, but you also had, you know, markets run by the mafia outside of every metro station, right? So you had it at every level of the system. Is that still the case in Russia? Or has it been kind of confined to different parts of the system? Yeah, I think there's, I think things are very different than they are, than they were in the 1990s. Um, and certainly if we're talking about kind of the criminality aspect of just day-to-day -day transactions in the Russian economy, um, I don't believe, and I, that, and I think this has been true for a long time, that the average entrepreneur is necessarily dealing with anything like they saw in the 1990s, where you have straight out extortion rackets. Um, to the extent that you have extortion rackets, they've been come more, they're more sophisticated, um, and they're often more tied to the state, right? So they might be uh, involving people from the FSB or from the uh, from the police or, or for some other type of bureaucratic regulator. Uh, but I, I think in terms of straight up criminal activity, we don't see that in the same raw form as the 1990s. Um, I, I also do think that while there's certainly still lower level corruption and then of course higher level corruption, that Putin is somewhat sincere in some of his fights against corruption because if we could have a perfect world, it'd be one in which he and people around him get involved, do as much corruption as they want. At the same time, there's enough corruption by semi-powerful people, say governors, that he can use that against them when he needs to, but that everybody else does exactly what he wants all the time, and it functions, you know, like a perfectly clean European, you know, the Scandinavian bureaucracy, where he says, do this, and they get it done without stealing anything, without taking bribes, and so on. I think in that sense, if you could read his mind, which, of course, we can't, he would say fighting corruption at that level is fantastic. And so I do think there's sincere and legitimate pressure on some lower level bureaucrats to not be involved in corruption. Not that that's always successful, but I do think that part on, you know, when we talk about what Putin wants is, is actually genuine. Yeah, it's always occurred to me that to, to the extent that you accept the statement that the Tsar of Russia is by definition the wealthiest man in the world, and, and I think that's basically true of Putin, 
Uh, I mean, simply because this is a, you know, extremely wealthy, natural resource endowed, massive uh, chunk of territory. Um, and the fact that Putin has, in effect, been able to indefinitely extend uh, his control for what looks like it, it could be the rest of his life, um, then you, you know, you ask the very obvious question, well, yeah, wouldn't he want to rule over the most efficiently run and wealthy system that he possibly could? could. And, you know, we know from empirical evidence that the system gets richer, it generates more wealth, period, if it's not corrupt. So, you know, either, either he gets that and has been unable to implement that, right, despite being very effective at extending his rule, which is, raises questions like, why can't he do that? Uh, or he just doesn't get it. And, and he's so much himself a, a product of that system that it just is what it is. I, I agree. I think he partially gets it in the sense that I think overall, and then particularly when he first came to power in the early 2000s, there was definitely a sense that if you want to have a country be powerful, like he clearly does want Russia to be, that you have to have a functioning economy. If you want to have a functioning economy, you have to have some protection for, for property rights. You have to have some level of rule of law and you have to have some level of corruption not getting too out of control. But what I don't think he gets perhaps is that he seems to think it's possible or at least just be willing to take the bad sides along with the good sides of having this high level corruption um, in, in that, I mean, and at the same time, somehow keeping the rest of the society less corrupt. And I don't think that's really as possible as he would like. Um, and again, I don't know if he thinks that's possible or if he understands it's not possible, but just says, you know, I'll do my best to tamp down lower level corruption while having high level corruption. And I'll, I'll admit that that's not perfect, but I need the high level corruption because that's what keeps everybody tied to me. And that's what keeps me having control over, over everybody else. Um, so, but I, but I definitely, I don't see Putinism like some do as, as a pure kleptocracy, um, you know, and, and part of it's, uh, you know, for the logic that you just raised and that if you're gonna rule over this, you obviously want to generate wealth, but it's also that there's, there's real geopolitical goals here. And in a pure kleptocracy, you'd go to, you know, uh, you know, send your army over to Syria, and you'd find out you don't have a real army, but they have a real army. That doesn't happen in a real, in a real kleptocracy. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of corruption, especially at the upper levels, but it's, it's, you know, has to be kept in check to a degree or they would not be able to do some of the geopolitical things that they want to do. Um, I, I apologize. I'm going on and off of mute because of a certain amount of background noise. I'm sympathetic. <laughs> Four-year-olds do not respect the Facebook Live protocol. I can see that. I, um, I fully understand. And uh, so, if you hear dogs barking in the background, you'll you'll see me on mute. So, so so the last question on Russia, and then I do want to change gears to Ukraine. Is, um, you know, it's 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 understandable uh, that uh, Putin has effectively consolidated uh, all state activity, and that includes what passes for anti-corruption campaigns, just as in Soviet times, they're all functions of the state apparatus. But there is nonetheless a considerable degree of, you know, what you would call NGO activism or NGO kind of ferment in Russia. Um, you know, some of it that we follow in the West is around memorial and sort of collective memory and, and uh, human rights and things like that. But presumably corruption is also something that inspires people to take this sort of asystemic or out, outside of the system action um, other than protest. Is there any, have you seen anything that looks like an effective model for combating corruption that originates actually outside of the state that isn't, you know, Putin issuing an ukaz that says, you know, this governor is corrupt, so he should go? 
I mean, I, I think it's impossible not to give some credit to Navalny and, and everything he's done. Um, I mean, in terms of wanting to say, is it effective? I think we can have a longer conversation and particularly with Ukraine, I think it's worth coming back to this about, you know, what does it mean to say that you successfully fought corruption? I, I think we don't have a very clear understanding of that in most discussions when, 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 we, when we have a conversation about, you know, this reform or this campaign or this country successfully fought corruption, you know, what exactly that means can mean a lot of different things. And certainly to say that Navalny has reduced corruption in Russia, I think that's a stretch. Um, but has he brought transparency to key aspects of the government? Absolutely. Um, and has he kept corruption, you know, as we were talking about in terms of it being a political issue, has he kept it at the forefront of political discussion? Absolutely. Um, and actually, if we're, you know, since we're about to pivot to Ukraine anyways, I'd say one thing I always find somewhat interesting is, is why is there not Ukrainian involvement? Um, hmm. Because you don't have anybody who's that prominent and that well-trusted. I, mean, well, I mean, we can talk about whether Navalny's trust, that's, I don't want to be entirely controversial about that, but, but, but people, and, and obviously Russians are cynical enough that there's people who say Navalny has ties to the Kremlin and that you know, this, is all, this is all some big ploy and so on. But uh, I mean, to me, he seems actually to have more legitimacy among the Russian people than any of the anti-corruption civil society members do actually in Ukraine among most Ukrainians, um, which I find really sort of striking. And you have a much more fractured scene in the civil society in Ukraine. So Ukraine's civil society is amazing compared to Russia, right? It's really boisterous. It's, it's really legitimate. It's really grassroots. But at the same time, um, you have all sorts of ways in which there isn't somebody who's kind of the clear anti-systemic voice of fighting corruption. And I always find that sort of interesting. So I think Navalny plays a, a very intriguing role. But of course, you know, what he actually gets done, what he's able to get done in that system, I think that's really hard to judge. I think we have to well, kind of specifically uh, I mean, say with respect to what. You could argue that the difference in Ukraine has always been that there isn't a Navalny, both because there are so many Navalny's and because there are no barriers to them simply entering politics and becoming, you know, Arsenia Yatsenyuk, which, again, and not not to say that they're the same, but, you know, as a guy who ostensibly is, like, young and energetic and technocratic and whatever, and then, like, gets almost completely discredited uh, for not being effective when given the reins of power at rooting out corruption or, or doing almost anything else, uh, though he himself predicted that when he called himself a kamikaze. So on Ukraine, let's, yeah. let, let's start with this, Jordan. Uh, tell us a little bit about what the purpose was of your, your going to the country in 2016-17 for the Fulbright. You know, what did you hope to achieve? What was that experience like in those years? It was sort of, I, I think of that as kind of peak Poroshenko, right? He was, yeah. you know, riding the crest of the wave. He still had a lot of international legitimacy and so forth. Uh, but man, was he building his own sort of mini power vertical, you know, at least that, that was my impression. Tell me, tell me. What I, I think that's spot on. And, and unfortunately, I mean, and, and what you're saying, and, you know, and probably we're saying at the time as well is, is a really good description of what I saw, but was not what I think a lot of people in the West were still saying about, were saying at that time yet about Ukraine and about Poroshenko. Um, I think there was still a sense that there was a continuation enough of the year of Maidan. Of course, it wasn't quite what it had been in 2014 and 15, but that overall Ukraine was still headed in a good direction, that Poroshenko was still, you know, more pro-Western than you could hope for for many other people in Ukraine. And, and, you know, I was doing what he could to fight corruption. Um, but I really see it as definitely this kind of interregnum period where uh, a lot of what was positive about those that immediate post-Euromaidan period was fading, um, where Poroshenko was extremely dangerous because when you talk to most people, they say, you know, Yanukovych, we knew who he was. We knew who he was when we elected him. Everybody, I mean, nobody had any illusions, including everyone who voted for him, that he was not just corrupt, but he was a criminal. 
And to a degree, that was fine. Most people in Ukraine are going to run Ukraine, are going to be criminal, but at least we knew what we were getting. But Poroshenko was much more subtle. And, and that, that was actually disturbing to a lot of people who are really serious about fighting corruption because they said he's able to fool at least the West, if mm -hmm. not some people even in Ukraine. And that's actually more dangerous than somebody who's not fooling anybody, but just kind of has a compact with society where you're saying, we'll steal up to this amount and just accept that. And you know, from people who saw, saw, saw Yanukovych's regime that way, it was really a question of only that when he and his son, or really his son, broke that compact and started stealing more than he was supposed to be stealing, that's when people started to really get upset. So I think absolutely, Poroshenko, that was a period where, where um, peak Poroshenko-ism, or whatever you want to call it, uh, was, that's absolutely right. Um, in terms of what I was looking at, I, I was starting a new project on this question of in places where corruption is widespread, who wants to be a government bureaucrat? So I was really interested in, in this in this perspective of, uh, you know, we even think about the, the language we use in the West in terms of what, what a civil servant is, you know, public servants, how we talk about it. And that doesn't really even make a whole lot of sense in the context of Russia and Ukraine, where there's such a widely understood sense that you go to government not to serve the public. I mean, you either serve the czar, then you serve the Communist Party, now you just steal, or you serve Putin. Um, and yet there's certainly in the context of Ukraine was a whole number of people who right after the Euromaidan, including, you know, prominent tech people and prominent, you know, young activists who, who went into government trying to change things. So this was initially a project kind of both in Russia and Ukraine on this question of, is it the case that people in corrupt societies um, go into government kind of with the understanding already that they're going to steal and, and, and profit from their position. And we see this, you know, in the examples of, you know, pre-Euromaidan at least, you know, examples of traffic police who pay thousands and thousands of dollars to somebody to get hired for a job that pays them a couple hundred dollars, you know, once they're in it, with the obvious understanding that's an investment, right? Um, so that's kind of on one extreme that somebody's going into government to make money from the very beginning. And the other extreme being the post-Euromaidan people who, who gave up, you know, cushy private sector jobs in some cases, take jobs that pay much less, who quite sincerely wanted to make changes. Um, but by the time I got there in 2016 and 17, a lot of those people had left government already. Um, and it was really kind of a situation where even that research question, at least for Ukraine, was a little dated because, or not even dated, it just wasn't, it wasn't the main issue. The main issue was nobody by 2016, 17 wanted to go into Ukrainian government. The people who wanted to steal knew it wasn't a great time to steal because there was a lot of attention to corruption, even if it wasn't necessarily clean corruption up. And the people who didn't want to steal, who wanted to change things, were all disenchanted um, and had gotten tired of earning nothing and were going back to the private sector. So um, in a lot of ways, I ran into some challenges with that general question, but I still think it's a compelling one. And that's what motivated me initially to go and, and, and chat with as many people there as I could in the government. Did you get the sense, uh, as, as I think many of us who watch Ukraine have gotten over the last six years, that there's kind of two levels of government in Ukraine. There's this kind of like permanent bureaucracy that for all intents and purposes must have been there since like the 70s. I mean, they're just like, you know, these people just filling out, you know, papers, Bravki about everything and uh, and then there are these just like, you know, yeah, the, the kid who's got a Harvard degree and worked for Microsoft and comes in. And they had these people even under Yanukovych, I remember, these sort of wunderkind types. And they stay for like six minutes. And then they either get, you know, totally disillusioned or a better opportunity comes along or whatever. It seems like there's just this massive disconnect in Ukraine between kind of the actual government and the people who come in to try to change government. I mean, maybe that's not unique to Ukraine. One could argue we're seeing yeah. that in our country, but yeah, the disconnect overall. I mean, I, I think that phenomenon of of kind of 
young Western educated reformers are there for a minute, no question. Um, that's that's uh, recurring. And if you point out, it, it, this isn't this wasn't just Poroshenko and post um, Yermaidan. It's not just Zelensky. This just seems to happen over and over again, and for a whole variety of reasons that um, I mean, it's overdetermined because there's just so many reasons why that approach doesn't actually lead to change. Um, we see it, and we'll keep seeing it over and over. Um, the only thing I would probably question is I don't necessarily have the sense from at least the people I talk to. And part of the issue that, that I struggle with is, is without narrowing this, this question down to like specific agencies or at least sectors, uh, trying to understand a government bureaucracy across the whole scale of a country. That's, that's not a small one, right? Um, it, it's just too wide. Um, but I found a, a number of relatively younger people in government offices at all, you know, from the local to the regional to the federal government, um, you know, some of whom who were there just simply because it was kind of the job that they could have, you know, and, and didn't have a different option. Um, some of who were there because they were just kind of thought it was, you know, better than better options than the up and downs of the private sector. Um, and, and some who were idealistic. Um, and, you know, and then, of course, you know, the handful who will honestly tell you, yeah, you know, I came to this because I, you know, I had the right connections. I knew this was a way to make money. Um, and, you know, they don't, you don't often run people who are that open about it, but you do meet people who are that open about it at times. Um, and so I didn't necessarily, you know, I was somewhat surprised that you, you know, I did folks groups with, with government bureaucrats at times. And you walk in the room, and you would not look at that and go, this is, this is Ukraine's bureaucrats. I mean, you, you would really not have some sense, you know, because I think we sort of have a sense of we're going to still walk in and see kind of a Soviet-style bureaucracy or something, and they're going to dress a certain way and, and, and really seem different. I think even most Ukrainians probably would be somewhat surprised if they walk into that room and go, oh, these guys look just like my neighbors. And in fact, a lot of bureaucrats complain about this and judges even more in terms of saying, the Ukrainian people themselves don't really know who we are. They think that we're some sort of class that's alien from them and we're just them, you know, we're just normal people. Most of us aren't stealing, some do, but most of us don't. And we wish people would just realize that we're normal people. And I was, you know, again, there's, that's coming straight from the bureaucrats. So there's some self-serving, you know, we, we gotta be careful a little bit about how to understand that. But I always thought that was really interesting because it seemed like the bureaucrats themselves kind of wanted to be better understood by Ukrainians. Um, and, and so that aspect I would, I would probably draw more attention to is that I was at least taken, taken somewhat by surprise by, by what, what a bureaucrat looks like in Ukraine. It's, it's a great point. Uh, it connects for me with one of the kind of fundamental, you know, on the ground experiences of, of corruption in Ukraine that I've had for some time. But um, let me, I'm, I've been reminded uh, by my team to prompt folks to email questions to Kenan at wilsoncenter.org and post them on Facebook with your name and affiliation. Um, the, I call this the the Ivan paradox, uh, or you know, it could be the uh, you know whatever. Pick your you know Dmitro or something like that in Ukraine. It, it's basically the ordinary guy, the ordinary person. Uh, we don't have to be gendered here. Uh, you know, really does consider corruption a big problem, and and will honestly answer in surveys and put it high on say all the data that you and I have you know gone over a million times. Um, and yet, in this context of it's about us. We are, you know, we are Ukraine's government. We are the people uh, who are vulnerable to corruption. That same person, like en route to family dinner or en route to have an interview with you or whatever, will get stopped by a traffic cop and pay a bribe because they're running late. And that's really just the fastest way to get there. Now, I know that that specific problem has been addressed with this sort of Georgian style reform of the traffic police. But I'm sure that there's a, an equivalent yep. to it in every sector, where in a sense, there's also a disconnect. Maybe there isn't a disconnect between kind of the permanent government and the young reformers, but there, there seems also to possibly, uh, 
let me put a question mark at the end of this, be a disconnect between kind of stuff that everyone does every day that perpetuates corruption and their kind of abstract desire to fight corruption. Absolutely. And I, I think this is something that people who are working in corruption are doing a better job of understanding. I mean, we're far from understanding it well. Um, but I think that kind of, as you're probably aware, there's, there's been pretty much for the last decade, I think, a shift in thinking about corruption, less from a perspective of, of, of this is simply a, an issue of monitoring and punishing bad apples to more of a question of understanding, at least in, in many societies, really systemic corruption where it's a collective action problem, where a lot of people would prefer to be living in an entirely different equilibrium where there's no corruption. But they're not stupid. And they understand that if they're the one guy who's trying to be clean, while everyone else isn't, and that's true whether you're in the government or out of the government, that you're really hurting yourself um, or at least making your life really difficult. And you certainly do meet people who are just, you know, unbelievably moralistic. And, and for what the side note, I, mean, I think there's a really interesting connection here between religion and, and um, anti-corruption in, in the sense of, you know, a lot of the people I met who kind of form really, really grassroots organizations, you know, the type that are like, you know, handing out pins that say, I didn't pay a bribe and things like that. And you ask them, you know, why do you do this? And say, well, because it's the moral thing to do. And they go, well, by, by what connection, you know, and it was almost always tied back to religion for them. Um, and so you do meet that kind of hardcore believer, but for the average person, they, they may think, yeah, this is immoral, this is bad, this is harmful to society, but it's not that bad to pay a small bribe to a low-level bureaucrat. And the reality is, even like in the example you said, that you know the, the, the pain I'm causing society compared to the pain I'm causing myself if I have to actually deal with this problem right now rather than getting to dinner on time, it just doesn't balance out. And if I knew that everybody else in society was making a change, I'd be happy to do so too. But I'm just not going to be the one guy who suffers when no one else does. Um, and, and that raises all sorts of really tricky problems. And if, if that's the case that you have to try to change everybody's mentality at once, that's a much, much tougher question than something that can be dealt with simply by, you know, doing new procurement systems or even by, ban you know, abolishing the police and rebuilding them. And that's how you, of course, end up with this um, kind of strange uh, constellation effect where you have like bright points where it's like, wow, ProZoro works amazingly. Yeah. And then just like this sort of dark sea of, yeah, we kind of assume things are no different than they were 20 years ago. And then another yeah. bright point over here. And this goes back to, to this point of, you know, we're talking about, you know, that I want to mention of, of what does it mean for corruption efforts to be successful? And that, you know, when, when people say corruption, anti-corruption efforts in Ukraine are a failure, I mean, I don't think that's entirely true at all. I mean, certainly you just pointed to one of the highlights, Prozoro, right? The, the um, procurement system that was put in place after uh, year, the year of Maidan. And... Um, which actually fits quite well with evidence from across the globe that e-governance is one of the things that seems to work pretty effectively in terms of reducing corruption, you know, and, and this can be anything from, you know, somehow removing the middleman so that there's not a bribe offered when you have to do a government service, but it can also be simply just information in the sense of, you know, if we're talking about money that gets embezzled as it goes from, say, the central government down to the local government for schools, and you create a system where that's trackable, you know, directly by people all through some online system, you see pretty significant declines in things like embezzlement. Um, and really rigorous studies are showing this in places like India, um, Indonesia, and so on. But when you figure out, when you say, okay, what level of success that is, then you have to ask yourself, so say, you know, 70% of money was getting embezzled before, and now it's 50%. That, that's not a major change, right? That's a pretty significant, 20 percentage points, that's a significant change. Um, and so, you, you know, you see a, an economist publish a great field, you know, a field experiment on this and it goes into a top journal and, and that's worthy. I mean, that's statistically significant and it's, you know, substantively significant. But then you go, but, you know, how come it's not, you know, this country's not rising in Transparency International or something? Well, it's, it's one little piece compared to this whole sea of corruption, like you called it. 
Um, so is that success or not? I, I don't know. And so that's, I think, the type of question that you have to start asking is when we talk about failures, are we really expecting this only to be like something where you've gone, you know, you become like Sweden or at least like Canada or something like that. And that's success and nothing else is. Or are we satisfied to say, look, it, they used to seal 70 percent. Now they sell 50 percent. That's a success. Um, and I don't have an easy answer to that, but I think it's a question that people who are asking this, you know, these who are debating whether or not fighting corruption is working need to have more honestly. Of what exactly is it that you expect to happen? And then you can say, is it happening or not? Well, and, and that kind of brings us to the, the political dimension of the problem set in Ukraine, which is, you know, it's uh, I'm, I'm, I'm working now on a, on a book project on Ukraine with uh, several colleagues, including Misha Minakov, who, who edits our Focus Ukraine blog. And you know, we have a, a chapter sort of telling the history of cycles in Ukrainian uh, democracy. And <clears throat> each cycle, you know, begins by uh, sort of intense frustration with, among other things, always corruption, then super elevated expectations following the change, whatever that may be, Orange Revolution, Maidan, uh, uh, we may be warming up to another one now, and then disappointment that it didn't move or it didn't move fast enough, right? And then there might even be backsliding because of the indifference and cynicism, people are prepared literally for anybody but these people, right? And that anybody could be literally the old bad guys from before. Just maybe <laughs> and, and dressed has up been, different. right? And has been. And yeah. so this problem of cycles based exactly on what you're describing of kind of um, maybe unreasonably high expectations, expectations for faster movement. Like some people literally almost almost think that there's this magic to like, well, if we could just join the European Union, then we would be Germany. Well, it doesn't really work like that. Like, have you been to Romania? Like, it's nice. It's, yeah. it's like a little better, but it's not Germany. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there is no easy solution here. And, and there's a paradox, uh, in addition to the one you point out before, people who don't like corruption yet participate in it, which I do think is a really interesting, you know, way to frame this question and, and all sorts of good research, much more than has been done, can be done on that question. But um, the other paradox that comes out of thinking about corruption as this kind of collective action problem is on the one hand, you have some people pushing for this idea that the, the main dramatic shifts really do come quickly. Um, you know, they point to examples from Scandinavia where, you know, like Denmark, you know, centuries ago loses a war and the king kind of understands the only way for us to be modern is to completely, or to not lose again, is to completely modernize everything and, you know, build a modern bureaucracy or something like that. And it happens all in a generation and so on. Right. And, I, and I think there's stories, but and this isn't, this kind of parallel is not just stories that we tell about corruption, but about economic development and things like that, where, where whole, you know, countries just realize it's a survival question. And the only way to deal with it after a war that you badly lost is to fundamentally modernize. Um, and, but that's not something you really go and export and say to Ukraine, you know, just get, you know, destroyed in a war. And then, you know, as soon as you do that, you'll all be ready to change. And of course we know from, you know, Russia to mention just a few places that you can, you can have badly failed modernization efforts historically, um, that, 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 you know, even after you get your butt kicked in a war that don't lead to major changes. Um, but the paradox there is that it's a collective action problem that's really hard to change, but then the handful of times it doesn't change does seem to shift fairly quickly sometimes. Then you have cases so much more like the United States where, you know, I can't point to a specific moment where I can say the United States, at least as a whole, was super corrupt and then super not corrupt. I mean, it was a really long overall process um, and really happened more in some cities than other cities and some places than other places. Um, and then, of course, as we know from current events, and I don't think we want to fully go into the United States, you know, issues today, but we know this is an ongoing process, just like keeping democracy alive is an ongoing process that, constantly you see the, the the possibility for corruption to arise again and and it's always there to a certain extent it's just a question of how much is going to become systemic as opposed to isolated incidents 
Um, and so on the other hand, we do see these really long drawn out periods. And if that's what we're telling Ukraine, then this period, you know, we've talked about the end of the Soviet Union. It's, it's, three, it's three decades. Um, you know, and, and I, I don't know what should be a realistic expectation to say, you know, how much corruption should you get rid of in three decades? Um, I, I think that's in the bigger span of things, not a very long time. Right. No, I think that's a that's a really good point about kind of history and perception uh, and the long time cycles for these things. And of course, you know, that is difficult for us as Westerners to process when we hear this seemingly cynical argument from kind of authoritarian leaning, very, you know, gray post-Soviet types who tell us, well, it's only been 20 years or it's only been 30 years, you know, stop holding us to this unrealistic standard. I'm, I'm reminded of um, a, a podcast, a history podcast I was listening to called Tides of History. And I'm blanking now on the, on the name of the author who was being interviewed, but he had written uh, a book about essentially um, kind of Reconstruction Era and Gilded uh, Age America. So essentially the 40-year the period uh, and 60 if you go all the way to World War I from the end of the Civil War to World War I where we just have this sort of series of relatively unremarkable presidents, maybe other than Teddy Roosevelt, we have, you know, just scandal after scandal, probably, you know, peaking, uh, maybe with the Grant administration, I don't think things were too great under Harding either. You know, we just had like some, some, some bad, I guess that's, that's after the war anyway, but you know, we had some, some bad stuff going on in our country. Um, and yet Americans now, 100 years later, while we talk all the time about like the mid 19th century, and we even sometimes talk about the early 19th century, you know, War of 1812, you know, aha, now we're friends with the British. Like, it's like we remember nothing that happened in this period, which was probably our most sort of post-Soviet period in terms of <laughs> the great Oligarchs of, and corruption. Yeah, oligarchs, the 99%, 1%. Like, no yeah. one thinks, thinks back to this time. Anyway, it's this is a total That's digression. Yeah. I apologize. We have a lot of questions. Sure. So what I want to do uh, with your permission is pivot to some of those now. Um, I'd like to start with this from uh, Rob Hollister from the State Department's uh, Intelligence and Research Bureau. And uh, I'm just going to read it because it's a, it's a complicated question. He asks, as the simmering war in Donbass drags into its sixth year, I'm wondering how you see things there now with regard to corruption versus the standard pre-Maidan rent-seeking model or the post-2014 looting by militia groups. Uh, and I might add to that nationalization of property, quote unquote nationalization of property. Uh, in your view, how much control do oligarchs have in Donetsk, Luhansk, uh, either Ukrainian or Russian, uh, versus the militia groups, criminals, or others? And I, I'm not clear if he's asking about government-controlled territory or not, but I think you can address any part of that. It's, it's a great question, and, and let me say hi to Rob. I believe we've crossed paths a couple of times at various events related usually to corruption and crime and things like that. Um, and I'll be honest that um, you, Matt, you maybe know more about this than I do, but I have not paid enough attention in recent, you know, in, in the recent months or even the last year to really answer that question with any authority to say uh, what's corruption like in, 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 um, in the, you know, the region where the conflict's occurring. Um, and I mean, that, that is a, it's a super important question, but how it's evolved is just something that really requires specific, uh, uh, specific research or specifically at least tracing it. And then I've not done that. So I'm going to pun on that rather than um, give an answer based on, on um, you know, something other than, than real facts and evidence. I want to, um, you know, uh, coming up with this in real time is, of course, tricky. And, and Rob, we can follow up with you. But I want to point you to uh, a publication uh, on uh, the Kenan Institute website by Brian Milakowski. And I want to say this was not long ago, uh, something like six months ago, uh, about the state of 
uh, industries in in Donbass. Uh, I, I might be I might be getting some of the pertinent data on this wrong, but in any case, um, I, I think you can find. Uh, yeah, so uh, it's Kennan Cable number forty-eight: trade or blockade, economic relations with uncontrolled territories in Moldova and Ukraine. Uh, and I think that there's there's more in there, um, and I think there's some related analysis on the website. So I recommend that you look at that. Um, so as not to leave you hanging, but I, I don't have an answer to that either for Rob. Um, yeah, I think me, just uh, corruption in war zones or post or post conflict zones um, has so many unique features uh, that I mean, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a fundamentally its own type of corruption um, that that doesn't somehow that you don't have insights on it if you study the corruption in the system more broadly. But I, but I really do think, um, you know, I'm from a department where so many of my colleagues really focus on post conflict zones and so many of our grad students do. And, you know, most of what I know about post conflict zones comes from their work. And, and to me, it's actually somewhat foreign compared to the type of corruption in, in a lot of the work I do. So I just really think it's a unique form of opportunity to get rich when in a place where you're having a war, or just had a war. Um, Salman's a here asks uh, any suggestions, and this is a topic I had wanted to get to with you, so thank you, Solomon. Uh, any suggestions on how external actors, especially the development organizations, uh, IFIs essentially, IMF, World Bank, EBRD, uh, can not exacerbate corruption while also making public services more efficient, competitive, and responsive to citizens? Uh, and he's talking about Ukraine in this case. In other words, how can they do what they, what they say they want to do? Yeah, well, I, th I think it depends on which, or I mean, organization we're talking about. So I think in the case of the IMF, I, I think they've been doing a fairly decent job in terms of the types of conditionality they put on on loans, you know, right around the time when there was questions about whether the anti-corruption court, for example, would, would be stood up um, and saying, if you don't go forward and get this done, then, you know, you're not going to get loans from us. I, I mean, I think that that type of thing has been effective. Same with, um, you know, the questions about nationalization and Privat Bank and, and whether Kolomoski will ever get his hands on on assets again and saying, you know, these are pretty clear cut cases where if you want money from us, we want answers, uh, we want, we want, we want action. And um, so I think in that type of case, I actually think that international organizations have been really effective in the case of Ukraine. Um, obviously Ukraine's somewhat unique here, right? And that, you know, you would never, even in the 1990s, have that type of leverage over a place like Russia um, for, for all sorts of reasons. It's too big. Uh, it doesn't care about the West enough, even in the 1990s, or the West would feel like they have to give the money or Russia's going to collapse right. and it's going to be too dramatic and things like that. So Ukraine's kind of the right size where it's it, you know relies enough on the West that you really do have some leverage. But I point out that those are you know two really concrete law type you know things that you can you can track right. You know if a court's been created or not. You know if a law has been passed about related to you know renationalization of banks and things like that. And um, I, I think it gets much more tricky than when it becomes a question of uh, can the international institutions make the courts function well after it's stood up that's something they just really can't do very well. And that's why I think organizations like the World Bank or USID have faced a much tougher question of, you know, when it's not a question of just, do we give you a loan to get through an emergency period, you know, economically, uh, but do we actually somehow condition whether we keep giving you aid for a project based on whether you're making progress in corruption? That's really tricky, um, you know, and that goes back to what I was saying before about what, by what, what understanding are you going to use of, of, of how uh, progress is made on corruption? And, you know, in, in some cases, I understand, and maybe mistaken about this, uh, IFIs and, and, and U.S. government agencies are literally using Transparency International scores and whether they're changing or not, which I think, you know, I, I think Transparency International scores are great for a lot of things, but I think that's a horrific way to use them. Um, and, and one that's certainly not fair to those receiving the money. On the other hand, 
I mean, who is supposed to actually be able to do that evaluation on the ground to say, yes, Ukraine is, is you know, making progress in terms of fighting corruption. And, and so I think you need much more nuanced, concrete levels in terms of saying, this is the type of corruption that we expect to be dealt with, and we have a way to measure it. And we're going to decide that with you on the ground as the Ukrainian actors, and then we're both going to stick to it. And, it, and you know, and as challenging as that is for the specific project, the money will keep coming if these specific indicators are met, and otherwise it won't. Um, but that's really tough. Um, but I do think it's doable. But the IMF has an easier job. I mean, in the sense of these big macro right. things, um, right. it's been successful, plus, I think. Plus, the IMF has this mandate not to do politics, right? So they don't have to be, I mean, they still do to some extent, but they can claim that they're not responding to anything political. Yeah, I mean, like the claim though is, I mean, with, if you're talking about Kolomoisky related things, it's hard not to see that as somewhat political. But, but, but again, if if the, if the if the point is we don't want to pour money in and see it go right out to you know Panama or right. somewhere, then that seems like a pretty legitimate and clear cut thing to do. Um, let, but the, let me, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I would just uh, you you mentioned USAID. We have a question from Sharon Valentine in the Bureau for Europe and Eurasia. Um, she wants to know if you can comment on the Dnipro Hotel privatization last week. Uh, if you know anything about that, and we have a couple more, so and about no, I probably I'm guessing that uh, some of our people in the government know are, are following the details of this and have more information than I do. Uh, to the extent that I know about these things, I'm, I'm probably getting from the same sources that that you, they are, um, and and probably fewer sources than they are. So um, I wish I could, but um, and if you catch me sometime when I'm when I'm actually you know physically in Ukraine doing research, I, I can probably be of more help on some of these. Um, Daria Judge from the Defense Department asks, can you please comment on the impact that NABU has had in Ukraine since 2014, and do you see it having a future role? Yeah, so this is a really good question, and one that I think gets really to the heart of, of, of how tough it is to evaluate whether things have been successful, which has kind of been a theme that we've been coming back to. Because on the one hand, there's no question NABU has been a success. Um, I mean, it's, it still has, um, at least, I, mean, I don't know if this will last much longer, but you know, it still has some, some decent level of credibility. Um, and, and I think that compared to most organizations in Ukraine, you can say that this has really been an organization that's been willing to go after powerful actors. Of course, because of problems in the prosecutor's office and the courts, very few of any of these actors are actually ever going to end up in jail. Um, and so how do you evaluate that? On, on the one hand, I think NABU itself, just the fact that it exists, the fact that there's a partner organization for, for um, you know, Western organizations to work with, um, and, and the fact that I think it sends a message that you know, there, there are some organizations that really are serious about going after big actors, all that's positive. But this goes back to the issue of expectations and disenchantment, is that Ukrainians aren't stupid. When they see you know, several hundred people who've been indicted, none of whom are going, going to jail, uh, that's, that's going to add to disillusionment. So I think you have a big problem here. Um, you know, it's a well-known problem, right, in terms of uh, SAPO, the, the, the organization in the prosecutor's office that was supposed to be doing the special prosecutions. It's not been successful, as far as I know, for the most part. And then in terms of the courts themselves, in terms of finding a way to actually put these people, you know, behind bars when there's a substantial amount of evidence. So, um, you know, concretely, yes, it's a success. But in terms of the bigger picture, I think this speaks to if you don't have those complementary pieces, I'm really concerned about the overall damage it does to the political system in terms of people just feeling it's more of the same. Um, again, to be clear, I don't believe it's more of the same. I think NABU has really been different than what Ukraine's had in the past. But the overall outcome has been more of the same. So, so in our final minute here, um, Jordan, uh, Stephen Keenan asked what the future holds for Ukrainians under Zelensky. Um, and I would maybe just refine that a little bit by asking, you know, he's declared that he wants to run for a second term. Public confidence in him has plummeted. Uh, I think it's 
I think it's down in the 30s, it still means he's the most popular figure in the country, but that's a low bar. Um, and he does face this um, local election this fall. Uh, are we, if we have this conversation a year from now even, or two years from now for sure, while he's ostensibly still president at that point, um, is it gonna be just a foregone conclusion that we're just back to the cycles and you know, there's no reason for optimism? Or do you think things have changed in a way that can't be walked back and you know, Ukraine's gonna keep making progress? I wish I could say something more optimistic, but it, you know, if I had to put my money on it, I would say we're going to see more of the same. I mean, I, I simply don't see, um, you know, if, if you can come to power with such a strong mandate and still really be not in such a different situation than, than we were, say, uh, yeah. you know, a year or two into the Poroshenko post, you know, Euromaidan period, where again, there was a huge mandate to a degree to make change, right? But I think that, you know, we know that Poroshenko probably wasn't quite as sincere about it. Um, but we're, we're just not seeing, you know, again, you can point to successes, you know, anti-corruption court is running. Um, you know, the members of parliament are stripped of immunity. I mean, there's, there's concrete things that have happened that are good. And then you can point to all sorts of problems, you know, the ongoing questions about uh, Kolomoisky and so on and, and, and say, yeah, it, it's just too muddled. Um, and so if you can't have a clear break in what you've had so far, I don't see what comes in between now and two years from now that offers you that clear break, unfortunately. Well, on that note- It's a we'll terrible way to end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's I, maybe not the optimism I was hoping for, but about the level of optimism I was expecting. So uh, thank Fair you, enough. Jordan. It was certainly the level of expertise uh, that I think we were all hoping for. And uh, thank you to all of you who asked questions. Uh, and uh, we'll see you again soon. Thanks, Matt, Bye -bye. for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Have a good one.